What's good, the Garden Church? What's good? How y'all feeling? Amen. Amen. Well, again, it's a, it's a joy to be here uh, this morning. Thank you to Pastor Joel and the elders here and you, the congregation, for, for having me here uh, this morning. Amen? Amen? Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for, yeah, your fresh grace and your new morning mercies towards us today through Christ. God, thank you for this opportunity to come and gather to worship the risen and ruling Savior, Jesus. And God, I pray that he would be magnified in this time. As he has already been magnified, may he continue to be magnified through the preaching of your word. I pray, God, that you would hide me behind the cross. I pray that you would increase and that I would decrease and that your word will do the work in all of our hearts in every way that you see fit. Do this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 One scholar says this, says, perhaps the greatest danger facing the church is an attack on its source of authority, namely the word of God. Spiritual apathy and a general coldness and indifference to the biblical truth and God's standards of righteousness also pose serious risk. Such indifference is usually denied, often with an aura of self-deceptive sincerity, but it attacks the spirituality of the church. Equally to be feared is whatever attacks the unity of the church. So a question for you all this morning, what or who is attacking the unity here at TGC? What or who is attacking the unity here? I believe you all are just returning from a church retreat. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah, so returning. Amen. Amen. Praise God for a wonderful time on a retreat. Uh, you're probably all feeling together, right? All kumbaya and all of that and such. And that's good. Amen. But I pray this isn't the case. You may find it that in these times is when your unity is tested the most and you have to be on guard. Paul exhorts the church at Philippi to be unified as there was some disunity brewing from within and outside the church. And in our time together, I want us to consider this exhortation. So turn with me to Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I know in your bulletin it says Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. I made a switch up last minute, text Joel. We're going to be in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And the title for this sermon this morning by God's grace is Humility as a Pathway to Unity in the Church. Humility as a Pathway to Unity in the Church. Look with me at Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, 
any affection and sympathy complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. Amen? Amen. Amen. If I were to summarize this passage, if you're taking notes, it may go something like this. Pursue unity as a church through the pathway of humility by practicing after the humble one. I'll say it again. Pursue unity as a church through the pathway of humility by practicing after the humble one. And this main idea will also serve as our points this morning as I walk through the passage. Point number one, pursue unity as a church. And we'll see that in verses one through four. Number two, a pathway to unity is humility. We'll see that in verses three through four. And then lastly, number three, practice humility by looking to the humble one. We'll see that in verses 5 through 11. Let's look at the first one together. Pursue unity as a church. Look back with me at verse 1. Here's what it reads. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So Paul here in verse 1 makes an encouraging assumption. It could be read like this, since there is encouragement in Christ, and there is, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation or fellowship in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, do this, right? The do this is found in verse 2, and it's a command to be unified. Paul says, since these things are true of you as a church, or should be true of you as a church, complete my joy of doing the following. Have the same mind. The idea here is to think the same way, right? Uh, To be unified in your thinking, to be unified in your beliefs, right? The next one, have the same love. So, So have love for one another, which also flows from your love in Christ. The next one is be on one accord. So be unified. Be in harmony with one another. Heading in the same direction like a military unit, right? On the same page, 
heading in the same direction like a military unit. So, so be unified, one accord. And just like the first one, be of one mind. Again, be unified in your thinking. Verse 2, if you look there, points back to Philippians 1.27, where Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So what is unity? Well, in these verses that I just read, we find our definition of biblical unity, right? It's not uniformity, meaning red is my favorite color, so your favorite color must be red, and your favorite color may be red, and that's okay if that's the case. No, it's a oneness in that we have been made one. We've been made one. We have been unified together in the Lord Jesus, and it's in the Lord Jesus and by his Spirit where our unity is maintained, right? Paul tells us that we should be eager to maintain this type of unity in Ephesians 4.3. Here's what he says. He says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's why if your unity is based on or maintained by something or someone else, it may not be biblical unity. It may be more of an affinity or uniformity. What we have here is a definition of biblical unity. We have to know the difference. So just a quick application for you all and for all biblical churches. Pursue unity at all costs. Pursue it at all costs. Let nothing, and I mean nothing, rival the unity of the church. Fight for the unity of the church in all things. But in order to do that, in order to do this, we have to have a roadmap. We have to have a roadmap, which then leads to number two. So pursue unity, number two. A pathway to, to unity is humility. Look back with me at verses three through four. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in verse three, we are told the pathway to unity is humility. Paul there says, to, to use the NLT version, it says, don't be selfish. And, and don't try to impress others, right? Selfish meaning don't be stingy. Don't be stingy. Don't be so concerned with your own personal gain or enjoyments that you don't think of others, right? Conceited is, well, I think every kid or, or teen here in the room can tell us what conceited is. Every adult, too, all of us, right? So with Instagram and all social media, they are places where our conceited selves get a public stage. They get a public stage. We want to show ourselves off, our accomplishments, 
our proudest moments. And these aren't necessarily bad things, but what happens is it can fuel the sinful side we all have, which is conceit. And it's selfish ambition and conceit that are really forms of pride. Pride is what caused the beef between God and Satan. And it's pride that was at the root of our first parents, Adam and Eve's, sin. And the sin we've all inherited from them. Pride says, look at me. Look at me. I'm great. Look at my stuff. It's great too. (laughs) It says, I got this. I don't need anyone's help. And it's really a conceited way of thinking, and essentially is really arrogance. Pride will cause disunity in a church, can cause disunity in a church. And God's word here gives us the remedy for pride. Paul tells us we all need to take a continual dose of humility. We learn here that humility is counting others more significant than ourselves. 1 Peter 5 tells us to clothe ourselves, to to put it on like a fresh white tee and some Jordan 11s, to, to put it on. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what he says here in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. It says, likewise, you who are younger... Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We don't want God to oppose us. It wouldn't end well for any of us. Instead, biblical humility is a humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand, which then produces a humbling toward one another. So he says in verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. It's not being so consumed with self that you neglect others. It's as Pastor Tim Keller says, he says, Humility is thinking of yourself less, not thinking less of yourself. In fact, that's what we see in verse 4. Verse 4 says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The pathway to unity, the road to seeing verse 2 come to life in our churches or continue to be the pattern of unity is through humility. It's through humility. J. Cole said, pride is the devil. And he's partly right. But it's most importantly a sin before God. And when we are consumed with pride, we are being more like Satan than our God. So how how might you be more humble this week? Maybe you might answer yes when one of your fellow brothers or sisters offer you help as you're going through a tough time. Maybe instead of looking for applause and not 
receiving it how you desire, you may in humility celebrate one of your fellow members instead. Or when a need pops up in the congregation, your first response may not be, well, what about my needs? I have needs too. I need my needs met as well. And then you let that need that popped up pass you by. Instead, you might seek out ways that you can help. And there are other ways that you may be able to apply that. However the Lord may see fit and how he may lead you, apply that accordingly. Essentially, again, the pathway to unity is humility. And this is the type of example we have in our Lord Jesus, don't we? Which leads to the last point. Practice humility by looking to the humble one. Look at verse 5 through 8 with me. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The humility we need, the humility you need, the humility I need, what we are looking for is seen in and modeled by our Lord Jesus. In verse 5, we see that he has a shared attitude, right? This is what it says. He, he has the same posture of humility. Here's how the NIV reads it. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So here... We see that the Lord Jesus has the same posture, the same mindset of humility. And this humility is portrayed in Christ's divinity and humanity, him being God and him being man. Look back with me at verse 6. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We see here that Jesus is God. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is God, sharing in the same nature, in the same essence of God the Father. The text says he was in the form of God, not a form of God, right? So he is God. This affirms what Paul says about Jesus in Colossians 1.15, which I think was even read earlier in the service. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. And the author of Hebrews also testifying to this. He is, in verse 3, chapter 1, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You want to know what God looks like? You want to know who God is and what he looks like? Look to the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is God. But as we continue to read in this passage, he wasn't tripping over being God. He wasn't tripping over it. What does it say? It says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The NIV puts it this way. It says, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So he, didn't, he, didn't, he being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We see Jesus' humility on display in his divinity. Jesus is equal with God because he is God. But he doesn't use his godness to his own advantage when he could have. It's like the kid of the president of the United States. They could use their father's power to their own benefit probably all the time. But they probably don't. With Jesus being God, he could have and doesn't. Instead, he descends from his heavenly throne, his heavenly home, which was very advantageous for us. So God becomes man. Look back with me at verse 7. It says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus continues to show his example of humility here. The text says he made himself nothing, or he emptied himself, as another translation puts it. What this doesn't mean is that Jesus ceased from being God. He didn't cease from being God. It's like Prince Harry relinquishing his royal title, right? He's still a prince by lineage, by nature, similarly, Jesus didn't cease from being God by becoming man. No, he was still very God, and he was also very man. He took on a form that he was not. He became a servant by being born in the likeness of men. The promised seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who was the promised Messiah fulfilled in the Virgin Mary, fulfilled in Jesus, fulfilled in his birth, his descent from his heavenly home. It says in John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Son of God humbled by becoming a human being, being born as a baby, 
having to depend on earthly parents to feed him, to change him, to bathe him, and to care for him. This baby, the Lord Jesus, was the hope for all mankind. And he would grow up in the wisdom and stature of our Lord, Luke 2, and then be put to death according to the will of his father. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, as if he hadn't already showed humility enough, took it another step. He took it a step further by dying on the cross. The worst ways to die. Excruciating pain inflicted upon our Lord. The most humiliating and humbling way to die. Jesus was mocked on. Excuse me, he was spit on. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was stripped of his clothes. A crown of thorns placed on his head. Hunk up on a cross with nails in his hands. Nails in his feet. Why? To save sinners like you and me. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you have come to worship here with us this morning. You may be here like, as you've been listening in, you may be like, here's another pastor talking about how the church has to be unified. How the church has to be in harmony. And I don't want you to miss this. You and God are not in harmony. You and God are not in unity. In fact, the scriptures tells us that you have beef with God. And that beef is your sin. In that you were created in the image of God after his likeness, but you have fallen. You have sinned against God. And because of your sin, you deserve his righteous wrath. Do upon you, do upon every sinner. But in his mercy, he sends his son to come and do what you and I couldn't. And that's live a perfect sinless life in our place and die a criminal's death for you and for me experiencing this excruciating death in love for you and for me. Dying, being buried in a grave, but thanks be to God, the story doesn't end there. He defeated death. He defeated the grave. He defeated our enemies, Satan and sin, and offers you hope this morning. Offers you help this morning. 
salvation from his coming wrath. Only if you would turn from your sin. That's what the word repent means. Repent means to, to turn from your sin, to, 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 to buck a yui, and to then turn to him by faith, by trust, putting your eggs in his basket alone for salvation. And the Bible says once you do that, you can be saved. You can be forgiven and cleansed of all of your sin and be granted eternal life. And so we want to offer that to you this morning. I want to invite you to come to know the Lord. May today be the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart. God is so merciful. Receive his mercy. Receive his love. If you would like to learn more about what that might look like for you, how to start your journey, talk with the elders after service. Talk with any of the Christian friends who invited you to this service this morning, as I'm sure it will be their joy to help you start your journey with the Lord. Amen? Amen. This gospel also reminds Christians of how he saved us, because the gospel is for us too, right? We never, as John Piper says, we never outgrow our need for the gospel. So Christians, we need the gospel every day. We need to keep drinking from the well of the gospel, the good news that Christ has granted unto us, right? But it also echoes how Jesus came to serve us and give us a model of serving. I know even hearing serve us, when you hear that, it kind of feels out of place, right? That he came to serve us, but he, he did. Think about Mark 10, 45. What does it say? It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, in a sense, Jesus' death was a model of humility and also a motivation for us as we pursue humility, right? We see this in his death, and that was important, but in his life was also equally important, particularly by obeying God's, you know, by obeying him perfectly in our place and becoming the substitute for our sin, by paying our sin debt. So we, we see that he, yeah, in his life and his death, obeyed God and did this perfectly for us. But when it comes to serving, we see this, especially in John 13, where Jesus there washes the disciples' feet. I'm going to read it. It says here in verse 12, it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, 
Blessed are you if you do them. Now, I know what some of you all are probably thinking. I ain't washing nobody's crusty feet. You're probably thinking that. (laughs) I get it. But don't miss the point. The point was not essentially the feet. It was the act of service that our Lord presented. So in what ways can you serve your church this week? In what ways can you actively pursue and serve the members of this congregation? Lastly, in Jesus' humiliation and humbling, he is highly exalted. Look at verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Son is humbled. The Son is humble, yet highly exalted. His name is above every other name, and is at his name and his name alone that all people can be saved. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow everywhere. It may be similar to the way John reports in his gospel when the soldiers and the officers came searching for Jesus at his betrayal. John says there, here in John 18, 4 through 6, it says, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There will be a day where everyone will fall back and bow the knee. And also in verse 11, we are told that every tongue will confess to his lordship. The same tongues used to cuss will confess he is Lord. Except in this time, if you're not a Christian, you will confess while experiencing his wrath and not the mercy he holds out to you now. So again, We want to invite you to turn to him today while his mercy is available to you now. There will be a day where you will bow. There will be a day where you will confess. We all will. But do it now in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, not later, in his wrath. So turn to him, I implore you. So in conclusion, unity in a church is pursued through the path of humility by looking to the humble servant and Savior in the Lord Jesus. So may you, the Garden Church, may 
our congregation in Southeast D.C., Congress Heights, continue to pursue unity through the pathway of humility, not in our own strength, not in anything that we can muster up, but by looking to the example in the Lord Jesus, the humble servant and Savior, him. This is what he prayed for in John 17, that we would be unified. Let's pray. God, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for this reminder, this encouragement, this challenge to pursue unity at all costs in the life of the church. And God, I pray that you would continue to see that fruit bear here at TGC and that you would do it in CHCC's life, Congress Heights Community Church's life as well, and all gospel-preaching churches, that we would continue to strive for unity in all things by looking to the example of unity and humility in Christ. Help us to do that, we pray. And Lord, as we do that, we know that that will be a witness to the world that you might use our unity to be a witness to see those who may be experiencing disunity outside these walls, that they may see a picture of unity and be attracted to that, and most importantly, be attracted to Christ and his saving work. Do that here. Do that on our blocks, in our neighborhoods, for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.